Grove, for those who don't know, we sell sustainable home and personal care products, hand soap, dish soap, laundry detergent, paper towels. And we're really focused on what we see as the biggest environmental problem in our industry, which is plastic waste, right? We're carbon neutral. It's really easy to be carbon neutral. Any company that's not, I question why they're not. But it's really hard at our industry, so about a trillion dollars globally, 180 billion in the US. Almost all of that is wrapped in single-use plastic. If you were to round it to full percent, 100% is in single-use plastic. And this is a massive problem for our industry. And so we have a goal of getting zero plastic by 2025. And now the pressure I feel is the importance of our mission and the importance of proving that a company that sets out to bring radical change to the industry cannot win at a niche level, not win at a couple hundred million dollar level, but can be the future of the industry. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Stuart Landisberg is the co-founder and CEO of Grove Collaborative, a leading sustainable consumer products company transforming the industry into a force for human and environmental good. Grove creates and curates high-performing planet-first products across household cleaning, personal care, laundry, clean beauty, and pet. Stu has long been passionate about sustainability. He began building the company that became Grove in 2012, first under the ePantry name, when he became frustrated that he had to choose between his values and products for his home. He wanted to create a platform that would allow families easy access to healthy, sustainable products. Grove was established in 2016 as a certified B Corp and is now also a public benefit corporation. Grove serves millions of households in the U.S. every year and has raised more than $450 million in total funding to date. In 2021 alone, Grove's product innovations are expected to save over 2.3 million pounds of plastic. By 2025, Grove will be 100% plastic-free. Stu was previously with TPG Grove, where he was involved in more than $400 million in consumer and technology investments. It was recently announced that Grove will be going via a SPAC, backed by Richard Branson's Virgin Group. We began our conversation together talking about where he and I both grew up. Stu, thanks for joining me today on How Success Happens. I'd love to dive into your story, um, especially finding out that you're a Westchester kid like myself, like our producer, Brett. And I want to ask you, you know, going back to growing up in Westchester and, and for those listeners from different parts, it's a suburb outside of New York City. Growing up in as a, a young person, did you have an affinity? Did you want to get into business? Was that a focus of yours, even at a young age? Well, first off, Robert, it is great to be here. I'm a big fan of Entrepreneur Magazine. I think the whole premise is great. I think entrepreneurship is like, entrepreneurs will save the world and the world needs saving. So I just, I'm glad to be here. But I'll, I'll start by answering your question. I grew up in Westchester County in the 80s, just different than Westchester County <laughs> in the 2020s. For those yes. who are familiar with it today, it was, you know, like fewer Mercedes back then. Um, anyway, the I grew up in a family that was a small business household. My dad owned a business that he inherited from his father, which 
I think today employs three people plus him. It is max employed maybe 10 people plus him that sells, sell, still sells uh, industrial friction materials. So truck and bus brake shoes, not the brake pads, but the brake shoes. Tommy Boy is the brake shoes. That's why I make the distinction. Anyway, weekends, I would like sit in the passenger seat of my dad's beat up old Volvo and would like go garage to garage around the tri-state area. And I was like, you know, six years old or whatever, playing with the like brake parts. But my dad is meeting with some buyer at some garage. So small business was always a part of my life and entrepreneurship was always a part of my life. And, you know, I give my dad a lot of credit for showing me that having a business and being the individual who creates the momentum in the flywheel is normal, right? And it, in retrospect, it's not the like steady corporate job that most people have, but I didn't, I didn't know any differently. And I will say, I started my career with a very steady corporate job. And I think my parents were both like, thank God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I grew up in a very similar situation and in the eighties as well. And as we talk about Westchester back then, and entrepreneurship back then, it wasn't looked upon positively. My dad had a, a two-person business in the garment center where they would sell trimmings to designers. And it was just a real hustle, like exactly. just to survive, right? Put food on the table. And they were looked upon back then. I remember growing up there, it was like, especially in Westchester, it's uh, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, or you're a big exec at some big company. And it really is such a different time right now because entrepreneurship is so celebrated. But you took the route, you went to Lehman Brothers. And then what happened from there in, in the next few years? And, and where was your mind going with what you wanted to do? Yeah. So I was doing my best to please all the people around me. An intern at a Great law firm in college called Debevoise and Plimpton, which I will say, love Debevoise still to this day. Took a job at Lehman Brothers and personally brought that, that place down. Stock <laughs> price was never higher than this. I don't, I don't think it was my fault. All right, good. <laughs> if you're not, you're going to get a lot of hate mail, but that's a joke. He's making a joke, but it is pretty yeah, funny. Exactly. I don't think you know, the coffee I was bringing to my bosses was the, the reason. Yeah. Anyway, but it was, a, it was an amazing experience, right? You look at Lehman from the outside as okay, he's a 22-year-old kid. No one in my family worked at a firm like that. I get this job. It should, you know, I made it. And six months later, the company goes bankrupt. And it's really this incredible learning. The number one learning for me coming out of that was watching the whole organization of Lehman grind to a halt as the people stopped doing stuff. And I had thought of businesses as machines, right? That sort of just, you push the gas, the car goes. But really it's, it's just people. And I, my number one learning is there is no machine. It's just an organization where people are all collaborating every day in a really finely tuned, well-practiced way. But it was an incredible learning that, gosh, the biggest companies are just collections of people working together. And it really pulled the, the, the emperor has no clothes or whatever it was. I felt like I got let in on a great business secret as I watched this incredible organization filled with brilliant people collapse around me. And it must have been a traumatic, I mean, or, or just kind of an end of the innocence when at that time, it's like you come out, you go to a Lehman, you go to a Gold, like you're thinking these places are going to stand forever. And that was a very scary time for the entire world, right? You had a, a front row seat to that. How did that experience change with what you wanted to do and where you wanted to go next? Yeah, it's interesting. I, 
I think you said two things there. The first is just how personal it is, right? I remember the managing director who sat in front of me, you know, he had an office that's like 30 feet wide, big view, you know, guy didn't own an article of clothing that wasn't from Hermes, right? I like worshiped this guy. Went to my college, he was an incredible, incredibly gracious person. And he'd been at Lehman for 35 years and never sold a share of stock. And I remember him crying. And look, don't cry for the bankers, right? I get that. Like, I'm no fan of the investment banking industry in general. But man, it was a like interesting moment to see these people who are so confident, so brilliant, so helped by society, vulnerable too. And so the way it really changed my outlook on the world was that it really, all of the assumptions could be challenged, right? All of the truths, capital T truths, maybe they weren't capital T truths. And I think that for me was really empowering as I thought about you know, what makes businesses successful, what makes individuals successful. And as I you know, eventually started my own company, I thought back many times to the fact that really the thing that made these investment banks work, filled with all these brilliant people producing all this money, was that they all came into work every day and put one foot in front of the other and did the things, the collaboration that made the business possible. And that, that has still very much informs my perspective today on the most important things in business, which really, to me, is all about the people. Yeah. That's so true. And what was your next steps after Lehman? And give me a little bit of background there before we go into talking about your first entrepreneurial pursuit, which has just been incredible and taken off. But what was it like post Lehman? And 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 what was your plan? And, and what did you end up doing? Yeah. So this is the period between Lehman and Grove, which is so formative, but in retrospect, kind of short. So I was lucky. I had already gotten a job at a firm called TPG Capital out here in San Francisco. And they reached in and pulled me out, put me at one of their portfolio companies where I was the first employee and learned a ton of lessons about entrepreneurship. And this was a company that had an incredibly pedigreed management team, brilliant people, compassionate, hardworking, and not everything worked perfectly. Ultimately, it was a company called the Vincraft Group, which I think was successful, but it didn't go exactly according to the business plan. This was my second learning, which was that, oh my gosh, all of these people, a number of the TPG founders were personally involved in this tiny startup. It's amazing. And we didn't hit the plan. You know, we succeeded, but in a way totally different than what everybody laid out. And so this idea that if you're really good at business, you do what's in the Excel spreadsheet, just like, that's actually my experience. That's not, not true. So it was really cool. And then I got to work at TPG for a few years where I got to work with a bunch of entrepreneurs who'd been successful in really pivotal moments in their business. And that was that gave me a lot of exposure to you know, both how value gets created and divided up and fundraising and demystified a lot of that for me, but also allowed me to meet a bunch of really brilliant people who had succeeded in their business and see what the commonalities were and Honestly, the biggest commonality was that most of these people were really true to who they were, which was an amazing learning to take away. Was there any of those companies while you were at TPG that you remember and, and just thought to yourself, I want to be in that position? I, I want to be the entrepreneur, or you really got excited over, over one, or, or was it multiple where you finally said, I want to be on the other side? So, my deep passion is sustainability. And I didn't work on any companies that had strong sustainability missions. So I loved the companies and I would like put together the operating plan and I'd want to go do it. And then I'd have to hand it off. But personally, I never wanted to work in any of those businesses because I you knew the reason I said entrepreneurs can change the world is 
I believe our world is, uh, Grove is a mission-driven business. I care a lot about climate change and the environmental crises around us. And am I allowed to use a curse word on this podcast? You could say whatever you want. Great. Go ahead, Stu. Yeah. So I kind of think the world is fucked in our current like state. And the only way we can unfuck it is if businesses get together and start acting by a different set of principles than we act today. That isn't all about shareholder primacy and how do you deliver the best returns tomorrow, but it's about how over the next 10 years do we create a new framework that addresses not just delivering value to our customers, but also not totally destroying the incredible planet that we have. And the current businesses aren't going to be able to adapt to do it because that's not the framework that they have. And so I never wanted to jump into any of these businesses because I was like, okay, cool. You know, we looked at a dog food business, for example. I got to know the founder and president super well put together an operating plan, but I don't want to make dog food. Who cares? Respectfully, right? Like, I mean, I love my dog, whatever. Dog food's great, but I want to drive real change. And I believe that we're at a place in the world where government's not going to be able to do it. And so the business community, which is the core organizing force of society outside of the nuclear family, needs to drive that change. And so that's why I started Grove was I just like wanted to spend my life trying to change the world. Which is so and great. It sounds like super arrogant saying that, but like that's what I wanted. I was like 25. I, you know, well, okay to be naive then. <laughs> but it's great. I mean, as long as you can keep that going and realize that and understand, I've always saw that, especially the entrepreneurs we've had on the podcast, you know, the ones that had a mission, a real driving force behind them were the ones that really changed the world. We had a lot of different, uh, Ethan Brown, which is a big one with plant-based foods. And we've had multiple other entrepreneurs who really were focused on, on doing that, on changing the world. And that mission, I'm sure, kept you going. What was it? Why was that always, it's important to millions and millions of people to the whole world, but why was that so important to you, sustainability? Yeah. So, I mean, it goes back to the other part of my family, Westchester in the 80s. It was different than Westchester today. And that it was a little bit more alternative to give you a flavor for my family. You know, my dad dropped out of college in protest of the Vietnam War, right? Like this was not, we were, I think, so when I was 11 years old in social studies, I had this assignment to write what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I was precocious. So I wrote that I wanted to be the CEO of the biggest company in the world. And at the time I identified seventh generation which was a catalog business selling natural cleaning products as the biggest company in the world, probably doing like 20 million in revenue. But my mom was so committed to sustainability that she had found this hippie company in Vermont to sell uh, to, that sold sustainable cleaning products. And so I've always had this worldview of this belief that everybody cared about sustainability. And I, one of the really interesting things at TPG was you get to look at like the grocery industry, like huge industries. And you're like, oh, I, I thought that everybody behaved like me. It turns out my slice is 2% of sales. But if you look at it, it's it's 70% of the war of the US that wants to purchase conscientious product. And that was why I started this company, right? 70% of the US has conscientious values, but only 2% is acting on it. And I was like, that is a business opportunity. And that is an opportunity to build a business that's super aligned with my mission. But ultimately the mission came from my mom and my upbringing and the deep, deep focus on sustainability that yeah, I think I and Look, my, my sister works in sustainability. Like my whole family is really oriented around this being a top of mind issue. Your family, it, it sounds like a, a, an episode of Family Ties with your dad protesting <laughs> the view, except you're no Alex P. Keaton. He would, he would have cut the uh, sustainability part out, especially <laughs> back then. But let, let's talk about Grove Collaborative and 
What was it that gave you the idea, the confidence? What was it? So I've always had an idea in this space. And it's very simple. Like natural products work as well as conventionals and they're better for the environment. And they're not more expensive. So why does anybody buy a conventional product? Like that was the core insight. The insights really evolved and now it's it's much sort of deeper and it's about the plastic problem, which I didn't grok when I started the company, right? I didn't realize that plastic was a thing that was created by the petrochemical industry and that plastic recycling is a bullshit lie that was like done by DuPont and the petrochemical lobbies. And it's like, we should talk about plastic recycling. It's just a giant false flag, whatever you want to call it. It's incredible. But it was really this simple idea that people want to do the right thing and aren't. And so how do I make that change happen? And where did I get the confidence? Inexperience, naivety, hubris, ignorance, idiocy, incompetence. (laughs) At least you're honest. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if I knew now what I knew then, there's 0% chance I start this business. It's so true. It's so funny how when you realize all of a sudden what you jump into at a young age, but look, you guys have done incredibly well with the business and hit on such a a macro trend as well. But when you were first starting the company, how did you do it? Did you start it on your own? What, what were you doing everything? What was there a business plan you created? Yeah, there was a business. Remember, I thought businesses were built in PowerPoint and Excel, right? Exactly. TPG. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's embarrassing, it's humorous and embarrassing for me to remember that. But so the first thing I did is I recruited two of my good friends who were really smart in to help me. And in the early days, we didn't have a website, but we built the prototype in PowerPoint. And me and my co-founder Jordan and later my co-founder Chris would go to Starbucks, like random Starbucks, get people to click through these PowerPoints on our computer. And we would like keep track of what they were doing. I built all the backend logic in Excel. And I'd just be like, hey, here's like the thing. Do you want to give me your credit card number? And I'll like run it through the Square app on my phone and charge it. And people were like, this is weird, but okay. And so we (laughs) got our first two or 300 customers through a PowerPoint that looked like a website. It was like a a copy paste of the web of Internet Explorer or whatever, like into, into a PowerPoint. And that was how we did it for a year until we understood what to build. And then we built a crappy website and it took us four and a half years to raise our series A, but we just, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Hacked it together little by little. How hard was it for you to raise that money? Incredibly. Everything the first four years revolved around raising money. We, I should say, we we did a ton of consumer learning because we didn't have any money to scale. So all we could do was really try to learn what our consumers wanted. But anytime there was a sniff of money, I like, you know, would chase it down so hard because- I will say the most unpleasant thing I've ever done is run a underfunded business. Like, oh, it's so unpleasant. The stress, the uncertainty. And as a CEO, you really, at least for me, I cared so much about not screwing it up for the people who'd taken a chance to come work for me. I, a lot of those people are still at the company. I care so deeply. Even still, I'm like, I got to make good for those people. I mean, now they've had good careers. We pay them well. Like they can go get, they've done well. But I still have this like instinct of like, I have to do right for these people who believed in me. So it was so stressful. Even by the time we raised our Series A, four and a half years in, I think we were doing 6 million bucks of revenue. We had to pitch, we pitched 175 or 150 firms or something like that. And we got 150 no's. I mean, it was brutal. And there was one firm that said, like they were close before they said no. And we were almost out of money. I mean, we were like really almost out of money. Like I think I like multiple months in a row with just like at the end of the month, like how much are we short? Okay, here's a check, like into the company. 
I just called the partner there. This guy named Paul Martino at Bullpen Capital. And he deserves a shout because without him, no Grove. I was just like, Paul, there's got to be a price. There's got to be a price at which you would do this deal. And to his credit, he did not screw me over. He like picked very fair terms, a very fair price. Like the pre-money was 12.3 million. So lower than the current price. But you could have said $2 million and we would have taken it. We raised a real Series A from a number of investors who've been great partners. NextView Ventures, MHS Capital, all these people deserve a shout, Heron Rock Capital. And that access to capital allowed us to get the flywheel spinning. Um, but the first five years were the hardest personally, professionally, I think I've ever been through. Yeah, it's amazing for the entrepreneurs we talked to just how difficult it is to raise funds, even for the most incredible ideas. And I asked that question always, and we had a guest on recently, and I think they said like the first 50 people said no. And I was like, that's pretty good. Like the 51st, yeah. you're, you're in good shape. But once you did get those funds and once you had someone supporting you behind you, where you could then look at scaling the business, did that bring on a lot of pressure as well? And, and how did you make it successful? Different pressure, different pressure. for me. There's a certain pressure where people's livelihoods are involved that, you know, that made those first four and a half years so painful because you know, these people had taken a chance. People's careers are really important part of their lives. And they'd taken a chance on me and on this business. And I, they deserved, those people are awesome and they deserved to have success. And that pressure, you know, they were taking way below market salaries. They were working. That was a different type of pressure. But for what it's worth, you know, Grove has been around for about nine years. And so it was half of the time, like, you know, you talk about Grove as being fantastically successful. I'm like, well, half of the time since the company started, you're fewer than 20 people. And it was the pain chamber every day. And half of the time we've had access to capital. And once you can pay your people a fair wage, it feels, you know, you, at least for me, I was able to exhale a little bit more. And the pressure changes, right? And so I look now at the pressure for me is different. It's in Grove, for those who don't know, we sell sustainable home and personal care products, hand soap, dish soap, laundry detergent, paper towels. And we're really focused on what we see as the biggest environmental problem in our industry, which is plastic waste, right? We're carbon neutral. It's really easy to be carbon neutral. Any company that's not, I question why they're not. But it's really hard at our industry. So about a trillion dollars globally, 180 billion in the US. Almost all of that is wrapped in single-use plastic. If you were to round it to full percent, 100% is in single-use plastic. And this is a massive problem for our industry. And so we have a goal of getting zero plastic by 2025. And now the pressure I feel is the importance of our mission and the importance of proving that a company that sets out to bring radical change to the industry cannot win at a niche level, not win at a couple hundred million dollar level, but can be the future of the industry, right? Can genuinely bend the curve. So in plastic waste, Single-use plastic packaging is almost 50% of all plastic waste. Our industry is responsible for that. Can I help bend the curve? And I feel an incredible pressure to our mission, to our employees, to our shareholders, to make sure that we achieve the level of scale that our vision deserves. And it's a different type of pressure, but it's a it's real pressure nonetheless. But it, I, I would be lying if I said that it wasn't a really different part of the entrepreneur's journey. Right. You know, you see like this Facebook stock is down. People are like, oh, I bet Mark Zuckerberg's having a bad day. It's like, I don't think that guy's having a bad day. Like he's a way across the chasm. <laughs> right. It's so for me, the like pre, I know I'm gonna make it and post, like, okay, we've done something of worth here is those are different types of stress. 
Yeah. Talk to me, you know, when you started the business, if I'm correct, you were selling other manufacturers products, but right. I don't know how recently you actually started to sell your own products. What brought about that change? So we started the business selling 100% third-party brands, curated selection of the best natural brands. Method, Mrs. Myers, Seventh Generation, you know, Seventh Generation, the company that inspired the company, Burt's Bees, a number of other folks like that who've done a nice job taking the industry to where we are today. But we we wanted faster innovation than those organizations are able to bring about, right? All of those companies I just mentioned have done incredible things, and they're part of larger companies now with a different set of responsibilities. And we have the privilege of independence and the privilege of incredible direct relationships with our consumers being an online-focused brand. And so we could launch wildly different stuff, right? Our glass cleaner is a one-ounce, zero-plastic concentrate that you put into a reusable glass bottle. It's beautiful, higher efficacy, got higher quality ingredients. It's lower cost because we just sell the little concentrate and you add your own water at home. But none of these folks could launch this crazy, like concentrate, refill, zero waste. It's totally different. It's a wild departure. We could launch crazy zero waste product in a way that no one else in the industry could because our tolerance for risk is higher and our data, our connection to the consumer is better, right? We could launch it directly to our, our community. If they love it, awesome. If they don't love it, we'll hear why and we'll change it. So in 2016, we really started focusing on how can we build a brand to create the future of the industry in the way we want to create it, which is really about how do we eliminate plastic entirely, go from 100% in plastic to 0% in plastic? How do we do that? And how do we do it in a way that can still over-deliver for consumers in terms of both product experience and efficacy and price? And so we really started on that journey because we want to see the industry transform and sort of the classic thing of like, if you want this future, go create it. So we started that in 2016. And now it's a huge part of who we are as a company. The Grove co-brand launched in Target last year, becoming to more retailers this year. It's been really well received, not just on our own site, but in retail in general. And that gives us confidence that we're the learnings we've taken in building our brand over the last decade will translate into another level of scale and awareness as we bring Grove to an even bigger group of people. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. No one succeeds alone. Even the best entrepreneurs know when it's time to bring in an outside expert. With Upwork, you can find top developers, designers, project managers, and more who can start today so your business can succeed tomorrow. You can check work samples, client reviews, and more to make sure you're hiring the right pro for your business. And there's no cost until you hire. Plus, you'll only pay for work you approve. Whether you're looking to hire a single pro for a project or an entire team to scale your business, Upwork can help you reach your goals. And however you hire, Upwork is available to help you keep things running smoothly with 24-7 support, letting you stay focused on what matters, your business. Find the right talent for whatever your business needs at Upwork, the world's work marketplace. Learn more at www.upwork.com. And our next sponsor. Are you constantly finding yourself with 50 tabs open a day, hopping between tools just to do your job? Notion is the most customizable tool that helps teams organize information, manage products, and get more work done together, all in one place. 
With powerful integrations and API and seamless navigation, you'll have everything you need in one spot so you can make speed your advantage without the silos and context switching that slow companies down. Plus, Notion has a worldwide network of millions of users creating templates, tutorials, and new inspiration. The product is getting better all the time, and you'll always have the support you need. Learn more and get started for free at Notion.so. That's Notion.so to help you take the first step toward an organized, happier team today. And we're back. How about for you personally in, in running a business that's grown so much and your day-to-day and, and how has that changed for you? And are, are you enjoying it? Is there more stress? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. There's different stress, right? I used to stress like, oh my God, am I going to be able to feed my family? Now I'm like, okay, and I'll be a decent provider. That stress has passed. And you know, having a couple of kids, like that's a real thing, at least in my experience. But I would say my own experience of it is that I'm equally stressed about the things in my to-do list, right? Like productivity trap is like, no matter how good you are at your to-do list, you put more stuff on your to-do list and you can only be as stressed as you can be about the things on your to-do list. The thing that's really hit me as I've gotten older though, is an incredible sense of gratitude for the privilege of getting to spend my life and make my life's work a project that I think has real meaning, right? Something where I believe in our purpose, and where I get to collaborate every day with people who I respect, who have a shared vision for the future we all want to create together, and who are genuinely good. And so I just, I have this incredible sense of gratitude that win, lose, or draw, it's not about, it's not about like, hey, you know, what's the stock or whatever. It's like, hey, did we try to do something that we will be proud to tell our kids about, right? That moves the world in the direction we want to. And I feel so good about that. And I do think that level of gratitude tends to correlate with, I don't know, better business decision-making because it's, for me, it's a much more reflective state. So as I've gotten older, I've, I've tried to at least be more present and be more grateful. Yeah, no, that, that, that's so great to hear because there's so many people starting businesses, all different businesses, successful. But when you have a mission, especially a mission that aligns with really one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest on the face of our, our planet, to be able to know that you are helping in your way and changing that, that's just got to feel great. And I'm sure you receive tons of feedback from customers, others who are trying to do similar type things. And I would imagine that the feeling you get from hearing those stories is greater than any dollar amount you're going to make or, or, or anything else that, that I could imagine. Yeah. It's a huge part of it. You know, I'll tell you, I had a kidney transplant a little while ago and it was a, an opportunity for like deep reflection. You, know, you take sort of take your life out of your own hands. And it, as I was reflecting, you know, it was really about my own experience of what I've accomplished, what my intentions were. And really the thing that, that came away was, did I feel satisfied with having endeavored, right? And I couldn't control how much success I had, but had I endeavored to do right by my values in the way I'd, I'd spent my professional energy. And that was, you know, that period of reflection was really one that made me incredibly grateful that I'd like gone through this ridiculous, crazy up, down, pitched all those people, like been through all the sleepless nights. It really left me thankful that I'd, I'd taken the leap. You know, there are a bunch of moments where I'd really regretted it for what it's worth over the last decade. But in that moment of clarity, I really, I wasn't grateful that we'd been successful. I was grateful that I'd 
I'd tried at least to live my values. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I'd say as a leader, and we're talking about this, what does success mean to you? And kind of how do you know when you've achieved that point? I think everybody's got their own definition of success. So I can just share, you know, how I think about it. And I think about success. I've never, I've never sort of like considered myself successful, right? I come to work every day now with the same feeling of, oh my gosh, there's 8,000 problems I need to fix as I did when there were five people in the office, right? Or five people in the tiny co-working space that we were renting a corner of. I have the same sort of emotional response when I wake up in the morning. But for me, success is about, am I making progress towards destination that I believe in? And the longer I've been at it, am I taking enough time to make sure that the experience of sort of being on the journey is rewarding for me and the people around me in a, it's the journey, not the destination kind of way, right? Very much that you know, these, these are the good old days. And so for me, success is not just about how do we make progress there, but is the journey and is the wake that we are leaving, right? The way we're influencing our industry, the way we're influencing our employees' lives, the impact we're having on the environment, the community, you know, is that wake one that we can feel really good about, forget where the boat is going. And I do think to the extent that we focus on process, we, we tend to get better results at the end too, right? You know, I want to ask you, recently came out, I guess, with an announcement, you guys would be going public through a SPAC with Richard Branson's Virgin Group, acquisition group, I guess. What's the reason behind going public now and, and jumping into that whole game? Yeah. I mean, it's a little scary, of course, but I think the reasons are, are twofold. Number one, it feels like consumer adoption of sustainable products is at a tipping point. It's no longer fringe to care about sustainability. And it's interesting when you look at our customers and our, where they are, you know, we have a higher customer penetration in Texas and Utah and Kansas than we do in California. And that's really surprising to people. But our core issue, you know, you hear me, I care about sustainability. I care a lot about climate change. We go to market focused on plastic because plastic is a big tent issue. It's fairly easy to deny climate change, right? It's snowing in a lot of the US today, but it's very hard to ignore the fact that all of us are using this forever garbage in a zillion places of our life today, right? Nobody can be like, there isn't plastic waste in my garbage right now. It's just a fact. It's there. No one can deny it. And so 84% of the US wants us to take action on plastic. And it's an amazing moment where there's a sustainability issue like this that's become a mass issue and where we can drive mass adoption in the mainstream. And that's a catalyst, I think, for us to say, okay, we're ready to go public and help take our mission and hopefully our market leadership in the zero plastic push to a bigger stage. It'll help our brand, better awareness, and it'll help the industry by showing that with a mission like this, you can achieve real financial success. We can be a lighthouse in the way that you know some of the plant-based meat companies and alternative protein companies in the milk space have as well. So that's number one. And number two, the opportunity to partner with Richard, who's got a unparalleled track record in you know, creating disruption at scale is valuable to us. Because look, it's if you are someone who is a buyer at Pick Your Retailer and 100% of the product you've ever bought is wrapped in plastic. It's a risk to buy something that's got zero plastic, right? It's going to be a different business model than you're used to. And having someone like Richard's endorsement there helps validate what I think is our market position. And look, our industry, I said a trillion dollars over the next 20 years, 
Plastic is going to be eliminated from the trillion dollar industry. This is an amazing opportunity for us as a business and for us to have impact. And so putting someone like that on my team was an opportunity that, that was too valuable to pass up. And so that's why we're going public. And that's why we were so excited to do so in partnership with Richard and the Virgin Group. I believe it's really is a one plus one equals three type type opportunity. And before I let you go, I want to ask you, you talked about it at the beginning saying kind of half jokingly, probably not about jumping into this business as an entrepreneur. And if at that young age, you knew what you knew now, you may not have done that. Advice, you know, a lot of our listeners are are young entrepreneurs, want to be young entrepreneurs, older entrepreneurs. What advice would you have for them now? And is there any outside of obviously sustainability, any other areas you might say, these are places I would look at if this was me back 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something I'm incredibly passionate about because. I said it in the beginning, I believe entrepreneurs need to save the world, right? It's not no pressure, but it's on us like to create the change that's needed. So I would say, if I knew then what I knew now, I would absolutely still start a business. Absolutely, I would still start a business. I would just probably start one with a little bit of a different business model that looks maybe more like what Grove looks like today. It just wouldn't have taken me 10 years to get here. But what I would say are my key learnings that are most applicable are, number one, do it behind a mission that you believe in. Because in good times and bad times, and there will be bad times, that sense of purpose never fades. There are moments you think you'll be super rich and moments you think you'll be super poor. But if you have a mission, you'll always feel like you're on the right side of history. And in my experience, the most rewarding part of business is actually not the mission. It's the people you go achieve the mission with, right? A win by yourself, who cares, right? I have such an amazing group of people around me. I love the team at Grove. Love like, and I don't use that word lightly, the people I get to work with. And I've been able to attract, the company's been able to attract like-minded people because we're so explicit about our mission. So an explicit mission isn't just about you. It's about how do you create the tribe that's going to keep you energized and keep each other energized every single day. So I would say, find a mission that's, that's close to you and look at ways to make that mission real and larger and have the impact that you want. And I think that's the single most important thing. And for me, sustainability is a deep passion. But if you look around our society, right, there's real challenges in education, in democracy, in access to information, in what we call JEDI, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. All of those things are super important. And I think there's a ton of opportunity across all of those areas. But you know, this goes back to what was like my, my big learning from TPG was that incredibly consistently among the founders that I, I met who'd achieved success is they did it in a way that was authentic to them. And you know, everybody, every founder was crazy in his or her or their own way. And that's the point. Like, you know, they, everybody did it in their own way. So that would be probably piece of advice, number one. And the second piece of advice I would have is that happiness is the delta between expectations and reality and expect there to be ups and downs. And the only thing that is certain is that your plan will be wrong. So I wish I had, someone had told me that going in. It would have, it would have saved a lot of swirl and heartache. But ultimately, you know, if you're thinking about it, I would say it's just a member of the human race who's relying on you to save the world. Go for it, right? Worst thing that happens is it doesn't work and you learn a bunch of stuff and go back to what you were doing before, try again, right? Worst thing that happens is it doesn't work. I love that. Such great advice. Even as a few-time entrepreneur myself, hearing that again and understanding, <laughs> it just, you forget quickly, but it, it's so true. And 
And for you, and I, I love the way you built it, right? Not from the typical, like you said, you might build a business today or it might look different how you started growth. You went through all those, like sitting in Starbucks with the Excel and like, I mean, I love stories like that. It was like, even though you're at TPG, which is one of the biggest, if not like firms with, for what they do in the world, you still started the business in this manner. And then, then it paid off that you were there. And I, I love that. I, I love the story of, of the business and I have no doubt you're going to continue to keep growing and driving and, and really changing the world. So Stu, thanks so much for coming on uh, How Success Happens and really appreciate your time. Such a pleasure and uh, yeah, love to be back anytime. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N. Or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business. Or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.